0: welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, in this hour, we're going to be talking about space, outer space, the exploration of space and what lurks out there in the farthest reaches of the universe. We're going to be bringing on two very special guests. The interviews were pre recorded. The first interview is with Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, director of the Hayden Planetarium. You've probably seen him on a number of fantastic TV specials. And also, he's the host of the PBS Nova Science Now program. We're going to be talking about, well, some of the basics of astronomy like, how do you buy a telescope? What do you look for when you look in the heavens? And then second, we're going to talk about black holes, perhaps one of the greatest secrets of the universe may lie inside the clutches of a black hole. And we're going to bring on one of the world's leading authorities on black holes, Dr. Fulvia Melia, who's dedicated his life to exploring some of the most extreme forms of stars in the universe. So we'll be talking about black holes. So there seems to be a buzz out there. More and more information is coming out about this great universe of ours. Recently, NASA released this rather earth-shaking report stating that there could be an alien life form in California, believe it or not, a new form of DNA that uses arsenic rather than phosphorus to create its DNA molecule. For the first time in history, if this result pans out, and of course, Other scientists have to verify it. If this report pans out, it could be an earth-shaking discovery that will force us to rewrite all the biology textbooks. Even the definition of life may have to be changed. And it means that in outer space, when we look for signs of life, we have to be much more open-minded about what kinds of life forms can exist in outer space. And so once again, in this hour of exploration, we're going to be talking about some of the deepest mysteries of the universe and how you can be part of the great quest to explore the universe. Once again, our first special guest will be Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, director of the Hayden Planetarium, host of the PBS Nova Science Now series, and a frequent guest on TV programs. And the second guest is one of the world's leading authorities on black holes, Dr. Fulvia Melia, professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona, author of a number of great books about black holes, perhaps the most mysterious object in the entire universe. They are, in some sense, the ultimate roach motel. In other words, everything can check into a black hole. However, nothing ever checks out of a black hole. And that's what makes them so intriguing. They are perhaps the most fascinating, the most mysterious, and the most unexplained object in the universe. I mean, after all, if something falls into a black hole, where does it go? And what lies on the other side of a black hole? The first question for you, Dr. Tyson, is, if you're a beginner and you want to look at the night sky via a telescope, But you don't want to buy a toy, but on the other hand, you don't want to spend thousands of dollars on the the top-of-the-line telescope. What kind of telescope would you advise a beginner to get?
1: You know, I get that question maybe a billion times a month. (laughs) Okay,
0: well, billion and one now.
1: (laughs) um, You're right. You don't want to get a toy because the toys, the, the cheap telescopes, no matter what they tell you on the box... The problem with the cheap telescopes is they're not only hard to use because they have bad mountings and you aim it at something and you you just breathe on the telescope and the mounting shifts where the telescope was looking at and the image quality is poor. So just remove that from consideration. If, if you're worried about spending more on a telescope, then don't get the telescope at all. Just get a good pair of binoculars. Mm-hmm. And you can get a good pair for thirty, 50, anywhere between 30 and $50. Dollars. And binoculars are great because particularly if you're a kid, uh, you can do more than just look up with them. You can look horizontally with them right. <laughs> and if you go to sporting events and that sort of thing. So binoculars have a tremendous utility that a, that a telescope wouldn't have if you were never going to go beyond the entry level. So beyond that now, the, I would recommend a telescope. Uh, you'd have to spend, I think, at least $100. Bucks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But consider that the telescope doesn't go out of style, and you'll have it for your entire life. So for things that you have your, for your entire life, $100 actually looks pretty cheap, and the, some better ones are up around two or $300. Um, but what you want to make sure is that you have a, a sturdy enough mounting to keep a stable image in view. And telescopes get more and more and more expensive depending on how many bells and whistles you add. Mm-hmm. You get up around $1,000, telescopes have computer-controlled um, pointing systems, Back in my day, we had to actually know where things were in the night sky. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now you can be a dummy and simply... Uh, <laughs> just type
1: bummer. it in, you know, and, and, and the telescope, uh, it has GPS controllers so that it, oh my God, just, really? it knows where it is on Earth and knows where to point.
0: So you it, do nothing. It, you just sit it on the floor and it sort of like <laughs> finds itself, right?
1: It <laughs> makes coffee for you. Yeah. Um, so uh, basically, uh, I would say there are a lot of camera shops that not only will, will be happy to sell you a piece of junk... Uh, your average good camera shop will also have the slightly higher-level telescopes to mm-hmm. sell you. And you want to make sure you have at least a f- couple of lenses, one to see large objects like the moon, others to see smaller ones where you ha- need higher magnification. But so, so basically, it's quite, it's quite broad, and you might have specific needs. For example, maybe you don't have a car, and you have to carry the thing yourself. Well, you know, you stay away from the, <laughs> the heavier mm-hmm. telescopes. There's some simple needs that you might need uh, uh, have to accommodate simply based on where you're going to take the thing. But I can tell you this: if you if you happen to have a couple of dollars and you want to get a big, powerful telescope, the drawback is it may be so big that it's hard to take with you to places that you might otherwise be going, and then you don't end up using it at all.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So try to find the telescope that. Big enough. And telescope, bigger is generally better. Uh, It's one of the few things in life where it's always true. (laughs) 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 Bigger telescopes...
0: We won't mention the other parts of life.
1: Generally are always better than little telescopes because they collect more light. Mm -hmm. If you collect more light, you can see dimmer things in the universe. Mm -hmm. So a simple telescope a non-toy simple telescope, you can see the rings of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter, the weather bands on Jupiter. You can watch Jupiter rotate. You can see the craters on the moon. You can watch Venus go through phases. You can see that Mars is red and has ice caps on it. With proper filters, you can see sunspots on the sun in the daytime. You can see fuzzy splotches on the night sky, each of which, uh, some of which are galaxies outside of the Milky Way. Others are just regions where stars are about to be born. So you can get pretty far mm-hmm. on one of these first-level telescopes. But um, a larger telescope then will bring much more detail to those fuzzy objects where you need more light to find out what you're looking at. And you'll see spiral structures and galaxies. You'll see... Um, uh, uh, centers of star clusters the uh, with more light you can see dimmer things and the worst place to be for any of this is the city Mm-hmm. Make sure you've got friends in the country, <laughs> <laughs> right? Country. Make house sure you know the country mouse, you
0: know. <laughs> right. So uh, buy a telescope and a country house at the same
1: time. Uh, yeah, there you go.
0: Mm-hmm. Now there are two kinds of telescopes. One is the so-called spyglass or reflecting, a refracting telescope, this long tube. Mm-hmm. And then you also have, of course, the reflecting telescope of Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how big a telescope? Which telescope would you recommend? And if you get a reflector, or how big a mirror would you recommend?
1: Um, I would say the largest practical-sized that is kind you can just sort of pick up and take with you. A reflector is going to be the 6-inch reflector, and it has a 6-inch diameter mirror at the back end, and light comes in, <coughs> excuse me, reflects off the mirror, bounces back to a, uh, a device where you stick your eyepiece, and 6-inch diameter is a pretty good diameter for all things considered. Mm-hmm. And um, But the reflecting telescopes are... Uh, because they're open-ended, dust can get in and you can actually drop things down and scratch the mirror. The other kind, the spyglass-style telescope, which is a more classically proportioned telescope, that if you were to draw a telescope sight unseen, it's mm-hmm. probably the one you would draw. The kind that pirates use, you know, it's just this long tube with a lens at one end and a lens at the other end. And akin to what Galileo um, developed... Uh, that kind of telescope is a refracting telescope. Of course, it describes what the lens does to the light. It refracts, it bends the light down to a focus. And my, my personal first telescope was a two and a half inch refractor. And that's a, it's a, it's a nice-sized telescope, and it, sees, it can see all these things that I told you a moment ago, the rings of Saturn and craters and mountains and valleys on the moon. Uh, but it, it's a little more rugged. It's rugged. If, you, if you've got sort of rugged kids, for example... Or if you yourself are a rugged adult, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's the kind of telescope you would sort of haul with you mm-hmm. as you went out into the country.
0: And speaking about the rings of Saturn, uh, during the Yankee game several years ago, it's was a famous episode where the cameraman zoomed up and uh, showed the rings of Saturn to millions of New Yorkers who had never, ever seen the rings of Saturn. Yeah, it's
1: cool. Well, that's the, first, that's a testament to how good the zoom lenses are today. <laughs> yeah. The... zoom lenses, I don't know the age distribution of your audience, but... The, the old-timers will know there was a day before which there were simply no zoom lenses. And if you look at the old TV camera lenses of the past, they had a selection of lenses on a turret, and they would rotate that to bring a different lens into use. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the cinematic, all of the director's instructions never involved the zoom mm-hmm. because there were no zoom lenses. And the number of optical elements to make a working zoom lens is so high the number of surfaces that the light passes through um, is so high that the true solution to that had to await computers Mm -hmm. to make that work. And so now if you can, you know, if you can look at a wide angle view of Yankee Stadium and then zoom into the rings of Saturn, you got a good camera on your hand. Right. That would cost much more than your telescope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much more. And uh, the response was so enormous. Uh, so many people had never, ever seen the rings of Saturn. They called in, they thought it was a science fiction movie. And it was so great that the next day, the next day, they repeated it uh, because the demand was so great
1: uh-huh, during uh-huh. the Yankee game. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, we need more of that. Just a reminder that sometimes you got to look up.
0: hmm. Which is, of course, hard for a lot of people, <laughs>
1: particularly city people, where if you look up, it's a pigeon's there or something. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's just not a natural thing to and do. You take
0: your life in your own hands when you look right. up in the
1: city, and you might step in something. You know, yeah, you know, all kinds of hazards in the city.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, now let's talk about your early life. Uh, was a telescope there in your early life that propelled you to become an astrophysicist?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was. I'm a city kid. I, in fact, I grew up in New York City. Where the night sky, like I said, is a kind of a rare commodity. You don't even know it's there, really, most of the time. Mm-hmm. And my first telescope, um, uh, well, actually, my very first telescope was a, a, a Christmas gift from my parents. Is that right? And that was with this 2.5 inch refractor. How ref- old were you? Refractor. I was 13.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it changed your oh, life. Oh, sorry, it was, not, it, was not for, it was my birthday, mm-hmm. and I was just turning 13. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah, it changed. Right, well, no, I already knew where I was going. Mm-hmm. But the telescope, the telescopes, the telescope empowers you mm-hmm. to bring the vision to reality. Because I'd visited the local planetarium in New York, of course, the Hayden Planetarium. Mm-hmm. So I'd already been bitten by this cosmic bug, uh-huh. and now I, now I had this hunger, and I had to feed it. Uh-huh. And so that first telescope was a refracting telescope, and since I kept growing. In my hunger and my thirst, I quickly outgrew that, and then I saved money from walking dogs. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and, in New York, as you may know... <laughs> a the... lot of demand
0: for walking dogs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of lazy adults with, who mm-hmm. own dogs in apartment buildings. You can't just let them out the back door. That would be a hazardous exercise if you live on the 30th mm-hmm. floor of an apartment building. So mm-hmm. somebody you pay somebody, and they take your dogs out, and you walk them. And in my day, you know, I got 50 cents a walk, mm-hmm. and a couple of times a day, you'd walk the dog. I had a good back then. It does not sound like much money, but I didn't have to clean up after the dog oh, well, <laughs> the way people do today.
0: <laughs> that's the name of the game,
1: right? Yeah, that's right. That's why they charge more for it, I think. But anyhow, I used that money to buy my next telescope, which is, was, in fact, a six-inch reflector. Mm-hmm. And
0: so now you're with the big boys.
1: Now, I was, yeah, I was with the now. I was like, I was card-carrying amateur astronomer, uh-huh. and it came with a few lenses. I bought some more lenses. Bought the solar filters, and I was ready. I was ready to take in the universe wherever it would get delivered, and I would haul the telescope to the roof of my apartment building, a 22-story apartment building in the Bronx. And I'm embarrassed to say that I was much older before I, before I realized that the name of the apartment building I grew up in was called the Skyview Apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Was that right? Because it was just a a word with no Mm -hmm. meaning to me while I lived there. And I've looked back and I've read the two words, Skyview. Yeah, yeah, that's what Mm -hmm. I did up on the roof. So um, it's fascinating that, yes, you can become an astrophysicist even if you are star-starved in the middle of the city.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And also, I understand that you have written your memoirs uh, talking about this. Tell us a little bit about your memoirs.
1: Well, what happened was... I kept getting so many questions about like, what I did when I was a kid and what I did in high school and college. I said, let me just write this down. and mm-hmm. I just hand them the book. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> I said, read this, call me in the morning. Uh-huh. And uh, so, yeah, in fact, uh, my memoir, which in fact had a very first appearance a few years ago, it's now in its new edition that just came out last year, mm-hmm. uh, at the end of last year. It's called The Sky Is Not the Limit. Mm-hmm. and it's subtitled Adventures of an Urban Astrophysicist.
0: That's a contradiction in terms, right? Like like Microsoft works. That's also a contradiction in terms.
1: <laughs> I mean, urban astrophysicist.
0: Astrophysic- <laughs> well, you got to <laughs> read
1: it to find out how, you know, how that contradiction gets resolved. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's chronicles part of what I think a reader might be interested in in how I got to where I am. Mm-hmm. But I don't then dwell on that fact because I'm principally an educator, and I, what I do is I share the universe with people, but through the lens that I happen to carry as an astrophysicist, but also um, as a sort of public person in that realm. So a lot of them are sort of vignettes on how an astrophysicist sees the world around
0: around mm-hmm. you. Okay. Well, now let's talk about big telescopes, really big telescopes, like the Hubble Space Telescope, which is currently orbiting the Earth. But if uh, if things go badly for the Hubble Space Telescope, it may plunge like a meteor, like a piece of space junk from out of space, and who knows, may land up in someone's backyard. Uh, what do you think about the accomplishments of the Hubble Space Telescope, and do you think it should be allowed to? Fly fall back to earth
1: that's a that's a very uh, rich question and let me address it a couple of ways but but i'm happy to be brief if you have other topics as well you want to cover Mm -hmm. Uh, the hubble telescope as you may know just celebrated its 15th anniversary and there is no telescope that's orbiting the earth that has that longevity and that longevity came about and the belovedness of the telescope in part came about Because we were able to fix the thing, to service it, to improve it. As electronics and technologies advanced, you go up and swap out the detector, that's the business end of the telescope, and put in a new one. Because really, a telescope is simply a bucket to collect light. Mm -hmm. And what you put at the focus end, that's up to whatever is the the state of your technologies. So uh, the fact that it was serviceable by the space shuttle, by astronauts, meant that the accomplishments of Hubble could accumulate in our hearts and minds far beyond the normal life expectancy of a space telescope. Mm-hmm. And so whole generations of people grew up knowing Hubble as their favorite thing, through ele- elementary school, into high school, and into college. So that in part accounts for the love affair we all have with the telescope, um, not to mention the striking images that everyone now has as their screensaver for their computer. Mm-hmm. If you look at the productivity of the telescope in scientific terms, as you know, we measure this by not only how many research papers came out of it, but how many citations those research papers received, which is, on the other end, a measure of how influential that research was. And the Hubble telescope, hands down, is the most fertile scientific instrument in the history of science. Is that right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. If you combine both of these factors, number of papers published, and number of citations received there is no comparison mm-hmm. and so that's extraordinary I mean yeah. and you, well, you wonder how could anyone say let's de it well the way the reason why that came up is there are other telescopes <laughs> that were on the board on the books right that were ready to be launched and ready to go up and will go places Hubble does not go go that is uh... Um, scientifically will tread ground that Hubble cannot tread mm-hmm. and so you are left with this fascinating dilemma there's the bird in the hand, the working telescope that you know is successful and will com- continue to make discoveries, and this new technology that's going to go up with a new kind of telescope. It, by the way, the launch vehicle might ex- blow up on the pad for all we know, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's gone. Right. You've got nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Hubble is deorbiting. So there are complex sort of uh, funding, scientific, and political issues that surround when you turn off an instrument and when you turn on the next one. Mm-hmm. So right now, up to the minute, uh, last I checked, the new head of NASA, who by the way has all the right pedigree to get NASA out of its doldrums and take us somewhere interesting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's, uh, he's, he's a physicist, he's an engineer, he managed companies, he's, he's got the spirit of a young person, he's got the maturity of an old person. He's got everything. He like he came from central casting. <laughs> <laughs> I see. What do you need to, 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 for NASA to take us? It. His name is Michael Griffin. Uh-huh. And but anyhow, the right now he responded to these sort of battle cries of the the of turning off Hubble, and he says, "Yes, let's let's look into what it takes to save Hubble." And, but, in a limited budget environment, I have to pull money from other places. Mm-hmm. And so he reached to these, some of these other telescopes
2: mm-hmm.
1: and pulled away the money, not to cancel those missions, but to delay them, mm-hmm. which is a softer consequence, right, than actually canceling them. Well, now we have the scientists who are part of those missions complaining, saying, no, this is bad, and so this is the politics of of a limited budget.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, why don't they take a little bit of money from the International Space Station, which nobody wants, and even President George W. Bush has not expressed much enthusiasm for this bathtub in outer space called the International Space Station, and maybe take a little bit of money from the space shuttle. Uh, They cost enormous sums of money (coughs) for the manned space program.
1: um, There are two ways I can answer that. One of them is just uh, since we know we want to go beyond the shuttle and the space station in the new Vision for space exploration. Mm-hmm. Why not just turn off the switches now? Just, mm-hmm. just abandon them in place, or give them to the Europeans. Whatever. Um, the problem is there's a lot embedded in that sort of rolling ball that we have international commitments to complete the space station, so that because we have international partners in this exercise. So the recommendations that exist in the new vision for space exploration now, a year and a half old. Those recommendations say we will phase out the shuttle, phase out the space station. In big government, you can't just turn off a switch. You have to sort of, you need an exit plan. So you turn them out. I mean, you, you, you phase them out. And while you phase them out, you phase in the rest of this vision. And so they are now on a phase out on a phase out trajectory, a phase out plan to mm-hmm. have all the budgets go to zero at, um, while we finish the space station. And once the space station is done, the shuttle gets retired. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing, but you just want that to happen even faster.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's a $100 billion space station, and no one can find a mission for it. What's it doing up there?
1: Well, that's... You know, that's another interesting history. That's a whole other question. Of, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> it, it was born out of a whole other era. It mm-hmm. was born and conceptually born in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't want the commies with space stations over our heads, right. you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of buy into it, and then it's kind of there, right? Mm-hmm. And So it, that's a complicated political history. I'm happy mm-hmm. to say that the new vision for space exploration does not have that depth of politics driving it. Mm-hmm. There's exploration driving it. There's, there's um, economics driving it. The, the goal and the hope is that it stimulates industries in ways that the stimulation of flight, I mean, the, the, the investment in flight stimulated associated industries.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, there's some ambitious plans for it that, are, that, that don't der- derive from political whim, which oh. I think is can be the strength of any project.
0: Okay, now let's talk about the search for life in outer space. Uh, The Mars rovers have been roving over this surface. let's first
1: talk about the search for intelligent life on Earth. Oh, (laughs) well there is none, we know that. (laughs) That's a subtle question. (laughs) That's a whole other program, alright? We'll save that one. But go on, I'm
0: sorry. <laughs> okay, well, Mars, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had this fascination with Mars, and Spielberg, Spielberg and Tom Cruise... This summer. ...are, are going to scare the pants off us with, uh, you know, War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. And the question is, well, have we learned anything new? Uh, we see pictures of rocks, uh, we see indications of maybe water once flowed on the surface of Mars. Anything surprising uh, that caught your attention concerning the Mars rovers?
1: Well, as, as, as you know, the Mars has twin rovers, six-wheeling on its surface right now as we speak. Uh, one And they're on opposite sides of the planet, so that there's always one in view that we can talk to and get the data from.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's
1: always one in sunlight. <clears throat> so that's a clever way to explore the planet. These two rovers... Now, I am an astrophysicist, not a geologist or a geophysicist. So there's a limit to how excited I can get mm-hmm. by just looking at rocks.
0: A bunch of rocks, right? Right,
1: <laughs> right. So, but in all respect to them, I mean, they get into their rocks. You know, mm-hmm. if any of us have known a geologist, their home is filled with rocks <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that they found out in the in the valley and in the mountains and in the you know. Um, so, among this, uh, given this fact, my the subset of the rocks that I'm curious about are those that could have only formed in the presence of liquid water because the goal of the astrophysicist is not tell me what kind of minerals are there, unless those minerals impact uh, or affect the kinds of questions we want to, um, answered about whether Mars once had liquid water.
2: Because mm-hmm.
1: on Earth where there's liquid water, there is life. So we have this, you can call it a bias, but I think it's an okay bias, that the search for life as we know it involves the search for liquid water. So NASA has this mantra, follow the water. And so these rovers had, as one of their primary missions, look for rocks that may have been formed in the presence of water. And, in fact, they found them. So we are jumping for joy at this. And so that helps us shape the next mission to Mars because we know there's no water on Mar- on the Martian surface. Where did the water go? It's a big mystery. And most experts in this effort believe the water sunk down into the surface and has now formed a kind of permafrost. And so your next round of missions to Mars are going to have to be able to dig, mm-hmm. and so we're going to go to places where we think the water is shallowest and start digging. And so that's where that's that's the role of these missions in the big picture for our search for life on Mars.
0: Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and and speaking and speaking about uh, digging uh, in the near future, NASA wants to send a space probe to one of the moons of Jupiter, Europa which may have a liquid ocean underneath the ice cover. And, uh, no, NASA does have plans. I've seen some of the animation for it. To dig, dig right through the ice of this moon of Jupiter to uh, access the ocean and perhaps one day send a submarine down there. Uh, What are your thoughts? Is that a long shot uh, concerning a liquid ocean under the surface of the ice cover of a moon of Jupiter?
1: That's currently my favorite plan in the works right now Mm -hmm. it's still just sort of being sketched there's no sort of hardware being committed to that idea yet but in the minds of creative people the hardware is getting committed they're trying to figure out how to do this there's this moon of jupiter by the way the whole jupiter system the whole jupiter system and it's got dozens of moons i have lost count one of those moons is one of the largest among them discovered by galileo in fact it's called the In fact, it's called one of the Galilean moons. It's called Europa. And it is way outside of this zone around the sun where the temperature's just right for liquid water. Earth is in that zone. We're not too close. We're not too far. We're just right. It's Goldilocks. We're just right to have liquid water. You go to Jupiter, you expect everything to be frozen. But you know something? The ice on the European surface is, yes, it's frozen. There are cracks in the ice.
0: And that concludes our interview with Dr. Neil Tyson, leading African-American scientist, director of the Hidden Planetarium in New York City. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at one 800 7350230. Seven three five zero two three zero. That's one eight hundred seven three five zero two three zero. Stay tuned now for the second half of exploration as we talk about black holes with Dr. Fulvia Melia, one of the leading authorities on those mysterious objects in the universe called black holes. So stay tuned now for the second half of exploration as we leave the fabric of space time. And enter the world of Einstein, the world of black holes, with Dr. Fulvia Melia. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we conducted an interview with Dr. Neil Tyson, leading African-American scientist, director of the Hayden Planetarium, and author of numerous books on astronomy. Well, in the second half of exploration, we're going to continue our discussion about exploring the universe with black holes. Our special guest today is Dr. Fulvia Melia. He's the author of a book called The Edge of Infinity, and we are talking about the mysterious objects in the universe photographed by the Hubble Space Telescope called black holes. Well, black holes are so massive that even light itself cannot escape. In fact, when we photograph these black holes, we actually photograph the swirling disk of matter and energy and stars that swirl around the black hole. One of these days, perhaps one of these days, we'll be able to get right up close and photograph the event horizon, a sphere surrounding the black hole, and if you were to go through the sphere, it is the point of no return. And believe it or not, in our own Milky Way galaxy, at the center of our own backyard, the Milky Way galaxy, there's a gigantic black hole. It weighs about 2 million times or so the mass of our sun. And of course, there's ample speculation about what happens if you were to fall into a black hole and wind up on the other side. I should also point out that if you want to find out more about black holes and what could possibly lie on the other side of forever, get a copy of my books, Physics of the Impossible and also Parallel Worlds, These books go in much more detail than what we can cover here in this interview. Specifically, we talk about whether or not there's something on the other side of a black hole. Is there a white hole that connects a black hole? So when that matter falls into a black hole, it's spewed out the other end in terms of a white hole. And doesn't the white hole look like the Big Bang itself? In fact, there are some physicists who stick their neck out and say that perhaps there's another universe on the other side of a black hole. So when matter falls in, it blows out the other wind, just like a Big Bang with the creation of another universe. That, of course, is still speculation. But for more details, consult my books, Physics of the Impossible and also Parallel Worlds. So once again, let's now continue our interview with Dr. Fulvia Melia of the University of Arizona, one of the world's authorities on black hole physics. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in physics and astronomy?
3: Well, I actually grew up in Melbourne, and uh, I, I don't know if all of your listeners have had the opportunity of visiting the Southern Hemisphere, but looking up at the sky from the Southern Hemisphere, one gets a uh, quite a different view than than from the northern hemisphere. The Milky Way, for example, is very easily seen, and it stretches from one horizon to the next, and it, it fills the cosmic vault. And when I was small, I remember almost every evening just going outdoors and, and just looking at the stars in the Milky Way for hours and hours and hours. And I would say that that's probably what started me off. Uh, with that, of course, comes the natural curiosity of how things work and what these objects are, and one has led, I think, in most cases, to uh, a study of physics, and, and that's what got me into physics and astronomy, I would say.
0: And Arizona is one of the world's leading centers for astronomical research, I understand, so what is it like to be in Arizona versus being in New York City to be able to look up at the night sky and see the Milky Way, and also to be at the very forefront of telescope technology?
3: Well, that's the interesting comparison, of course, because even though um, I I usually tell my friends, especially the ones overseas, even though we belong to the same country, the southwest of the United States is really very, very different from the northeast, as I think everybody uh, realizes. Here in Arizona, the skies are almost always clear. Um, It's not a coincidence that many of the national and now the international telescope facilities are being built here. Uh, We get very little cloud cover during the year so going out in the evenings whether using a telescope or not um, is presents quite a glorious experience it's a wonderful opportunity um, to feel the uh, the magnitude um, of the skies and and the objects uh, there and of course for research especially for the observers and people who build instruments eventually placed on the telescopes with which these observations are made there's there's There are very few places on the planet better than this to do um, studies such as this. The clarity of the skies and also the uh, access to objects, not only in the Northern Hemisphere, but those approaching um, what one would see from the Southern Hemisphere. Of course, Earth's rim prevents us from seeing all of the portion of the Milky Way that would be accessible from the South. But nonetheless, during... Um, a portion of the year, we can still see the center of the galaxy, for example, which is close to the southern horizon for us here in Arizona. But uh, other than the skies here, um, the only other place that would present a comparable opportunity for studying um, these objects would be from countries such as Chile, um, which of course is way down south. Um, so as far as we here in the United States are concerned, unless we want to travel to South America, this is probably the place to do this type of work.
0: And also, tell us a little bit about how stars die and uh, the formation of black holes.
3: Right. Well, th- this, of course, is uh, uh, an ongoing investigation. We think we understand some pieces of the puzzle. Not everything is known. It- it's quite a long story. uh, uh Black holes can actually form in several ways, and it's not clear that the supermassive objects that we see in the nuclei of galaxies form uh, through the stellar process of, of life and then uh, death. Uh, they may have formed in other ways, and we may come back to this in a few moments when we talk about the uh, the genesis of these objects early on after the Big Bang. But... In terms of the smaller black holes, like the ones uh, like Cygnus X1, for example, these are ob- the objects that we think weigh perhaps uh, 10 to 20 times as much as the Sun. As far as these objects are concerned, most of them um, are produced uh, when a very massive star, and by very massive we mean something uh, an object that weighs anywhere between 30 to 50 times the mass of the Sun, uh, burns its nuclear fuel. Rather quickly, it turns out, because the more massive the object is, the faster uh, it burns the fuel, um, and then eventually loses that internal support that prevents it from collapsing to the middle. It's the heat generated from nuclear burning that uh, preserves the star during its, the main part of its life, like the sun is now. And at the end, when that nuclear fuel is, is burned to heavier elements, such as carbon and eventually to iron, Um, the heat generation stops, and the material can't support itself anymore and collapses into the middle, at which point um, a supernova explosion ensues, and the remnant, depending on how massive the original star was, can sometimes be a black hole with a mass somewhere between a couple of uh, solar masses and 10 to 20, as I said earlier. So the vast majority of black holes about which we know Um, And there are some billion of these in the galaxy probably formed in this way. But there is another class of objects, like the one at the center of our galaxy and the center of many other galaxies, such as the Andromeda galaxy, our sister galaxy. These objects um, have a mass anywhere between a million to several billion times the mass of the Sun. And although some of them may have started as seeds from supernova explosions, a long, long time ago and eventually have grown to the point where they are now, it's not clear that all of them could have formed that way. And the reason I say that, and this would lead into another part of the story, um, the reason I say that is that we now have very, very strong evidence that at least some of these supermassive objects were formed only 700 million years after the Big Bang much, much earlier than the formation of galaxies and much of the structure that we see in the universe today. So it's starting to look like there was some other mechanism, some other process that led to this early collapse and this this catastrophic creation of of, uh, very strong gravity surrounding these these objects, um, which... Probably also then acted as uh, nucleation sites that attracted other matter towards them. And that matter, uh, we think, in, in many cases, may have led to the formation of galaxies. So the odd thing now is that uh, we may actually owe our existence to the formation of these supermassive black holes because they may have been um, the seeds that created galaxies, which then, of course, created. Stars within them and planets and life, and so on, so it's quite a long, complex story and and we don't know all the uh the details yet, but some of the pieces of the puzzle are starting to emerge in that there there definitely appear to be several classes of these, and one class having to do with the supermassive objects uh, somehow had a genesis much much earlier than we thought before, and how they formed is not entirely clear yet.
0: Well, I have a question that many young people ask about black holes. Uh, first of all, black holes suck in everything, even light itself cannot escape. In some sense, they're the ultimate roach hotel, and the Hubble Space Telescope has photographed a black holes eating up whole star systems. So in other words, things check into a black hole, but nothing ever checks out. Well, then the question is, well, a black hole should be invisible. Even light itself cannot escape from a black hole. Therefore, a black hole should be invisible. And yet we have the Hubble Space Telescope taking photographs of perhaps hundreds of black holes in outer space. And so then the question is, how do you photograph something that is invisible?
3: Right. This is, um, th- this is what's really generating much of the excitement these days with... Um uh, theoretical astrophysicists and of course the physics community in general. Um, what telescopes that have been built up, up to this point have seen so far is not really the black hole itself, but what they see is light produced by matter falling into the black hole. Um, their resolution is not yet um, good enough for them to make an image of the black hole itself, the event horizon, which is the surface uh, beyond which nothing can escape, including light. So if we really could see the black hole itself, what we would see is a is a dark shadow um, in front of a curtain of light. The curtain of light presumably would be produced by matter behind the black hole relative to us, and uh, the black hole would absorb all of the light produced behind it um, or redirect it away from our line of sight because gravity can, can uh, bend the path of light, And so we would see a dark shadow. That's what a black hole would look like if we had a camera uh, with such clarity, such spatial resolution that we could see detail down to that size. It does look like by the the end of the decade we may have the capability of actually forming such an image. But for now, um, telescopes such as Hubble and Chandra have not been able to do that yet. So instead what they show us is images, or uh, what they produce is images of matter falling into the black hole from uh, larger distances, distances much further away than the event horizon itself. Um, both have have done spectacularly in this regard, though. Uh, both Chandra, uh, the X-ray telescope, and uh, and Hubble have uh, each produced a very deep image of certain patches of the sky. Um, uh, by deep, we mean that uh, there were patches in the sky, such as one in the constellation of Ursa Major, where there are very, very few objects um, within our own galaxy inside of that patch, and so it 's like looking through um, uh, it 's like looking through a relatively open window to much much distances much further away than uh, objects within our galaxy. And what they were able to do by staring at these patches was to collect light from objects um, some 10 to 12 billion light years away. In other words, objects that uh, were producing this light um, only seven to eight, nine hundred million years after the Big Bang. And what they see when they look at these patches is um, very bright objects, either X-ray objects or... Uh, ultraviolet or uh, infrared objects in the case of Hubble um, uh, objects that number as many as 500 within a region only the size of the full moon so if you can imagine with your eye looking at a part of the sky uh, that has the size of the full moon within such a region these telescopes have, have been able to produce images of as many as 500 of these objects and these objects are so far away they're so bright that the only way that they could produce this much light uh, is if they're black holes absorbing matter from their environment and converting gravitational and rest-mass energy into into light. So we believe that when we look at these patches, most of the objects that we see, most of the 500, um, must be supermassive black holes um, at that uh, distance in, in the universe. And what's interesting is that when one extrapolates over the whole sky, these numbers correspond to total numbers of some three to four hundred million such objects. And uh, we know that that's not all that's there, because that's what we can count. That's what we can see. But some of these objects are probably also obscured by uh, dusty matter falling in towards them, and so it's not clear that we're seeing everything. So the best that we can say is that there must be at least 300 million of these supermassive black holes Um, spread throughout the cosmos. Chandra, of course, has gone on and done even much better than that. Uh, It's allowed us to look at the supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy with even better clarity because it's much closer than the others. Um, It's only 25,000 light years away compared to the 12 billion light years of many of these other objects near uh, the beginning of, of the universe's life. And um, because this object at the center of our galaxy is so close, we've been able to study it with Chandra and and now other instruments as well. The European Space Agency has its own X-ray telescope called XMM-Newton, which has done uh, similarly spectacular studies of these objects. Uh, But with Chandra, we've been able to to see um, the X-rays produced by the black hole at the center of our galaxy with enough resolution that we can actually place the, the source, the location of the emitting plasma within a region no bigger than the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Um, in addition, this object seems to explode roughly once a day uh, producing a flare of x-rays. Um, the x-ray intensity during these events goes up by anywhere between 30 and 200 times what the intensity is um, during the quiescent state. And so for a couple of hours, the black hole at the center of our galaxy shines much, much brighter than it otherwise does. And what's intriguing now, and these are the latest results that haven't even been published in the literature, what's intriguing now is that there is very clear evidence that during these events, we can see uh, a periodic pulse it's like the heartbeat of this object. There's a periodic pulse that occurs r- roughly once every 20 minutes. Um, the natural interpretation for this, and, and again, it hasn't been published yet, so we have to look at this more carefully and make sure that we've ruled out all the other possibilities. But the natural interpretation is that what we're looking at is a phenomenon um, associated with. Uh, x-rays being produced in a region orbiting the black hole uh, within a distance only three to four times the size of the event horizon. So although we can't see uh, the event horizon just yet with Chandra or Hubble, um, nonetheless we're seeing a phenomenon associated with emission that's occurring only two to three times the size of the event horizon. Um, it's similar to what would happen if uh, you imagine putting a searchlight on a planet and being in its uh, focal uh, cone only when the searchlight is pointing towards you and so you would see a pulse every time the planet goes around the sun, which would then lead to a a periodicity or a period of one year in the case of the earth because that 's how long it takes the earth to go around the sun so it 's a similar phenomenon with the black hole at the galactic center. We see this pulsation roughly every twenty minutes. Um, and and so we interpret that as as being uh, uh... part of the plasma in orbit around the black hole and the distance that corresponds to that period is, is about three times the size of the event horizon so th- these are some of the most exciting things that are happening now as we speak and uh... the prospects will get only better as time passes and uh... chandra and xmm continue to look and, and discover additional uh... and and also with the next generation of telescopes in the pipeline now.
0: Now, everyone asks the question, what happens if you fall into a black hole? No one's ever done that, of course, but could you explain some of the distortions, the distortions of space-time that occur if you were to fall into a black hole and someone were to observe you falling into a black hole from a distant planet?
3: Right, And, and the... The answer to that, of course, depends, not surprisingly, on how massive the black hole is. What one would see falling through the event horizon um, differs depending on how massive the black hole is compared to the the mass of the object or the body falling in. Um, It turns out that for a massive object like the one at the galactic center, which we now understand uh, has uh, roughly 3 million solar masses worth of material contained within it, Falling through the event horizon of an object like that, um, a person would actually not see very much, <laughs> would, would actually not feel uh, very strong effects on, on his or her body. There would, there would be other distortions to the light, but, but that has. we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, the point is that um, what happens physically to matter falling through the event horizon depends on how big the object falling in is compared to how big the event horizon is. And the size of the event horizon scales with the mass of the black hole. So, for example, um, if the sun were to shrink down to the size of a black hole, its event horizon would have a radius of only three kilometers, smaller than than a city. Uh, Whereas the black hole at the galactic center, has uh, an event horizon with a radius about one twentieth the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is much, much bigger, of course, than than uh, three kilometers. And it's the it's the difference or the comparison between the size of the event horizon and the size of the object falling in that determines how much physical damage, if we can put it that way, is done to the object falling in. So, because our human our body is so small compared to Uh, the size of the event horizon of the black hole, the galactic center, we could fall right through and not feel uh, very much uh, uh, physical damage. We wouldn't get distorted or pulled or stretched or or compressed. We would be able to pass through the event horizon, and then other catastrophic uh, events would would ensue, I'm sure, after that. But but the process of falling in wouldn't do damage to us. On the other hand, if we would have fall through a smaller black hole, like the sun again, if the sun were to be compressed to uh, three kilometers size, then our body would get stretched at first, uh, pulled apart, and 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 uh, catastrophic damage would follow. We would be disintegrated, and and only the atoms and molecules would uh, would uh, fall through. So the the physical damage is different depending on the size. And a good analogy would be um, compare standing on on the surface of the Earth, where the surface of the Earth, even though it's spherical, looks flat to us because it's so much bigger than us. And uh, and then standing on the dome of a cathedral, the dome also is, is quasi-spherical at the top, but because the size of the sphere is much smaller compared to the Earth and much closer to our size, we feel the curvature um, <clears throat> of the dome much, much uh, more. And so that's the analogy, a small black hole. Because of its greater curvature relative to us would do more damage to our body falling through than than a big black hole does now that's as far as physical damage is concerned, but what we see though um, uh, would uh, uh would be less dependent on the size and there would be significant distortion to the light path progressively as we get closer and closer to the event horizon so um, light because of gravitational redshift meaning that Um, photons uh, have progressively less and less energy, not speed. The speed of light is always the same, but the energy of the photons decreases relative to us at infinity as they get closer and closer uh, to the event horizon. Because of that decreasing energy, we have uh, greater and greater difficulty seeing the light. Eventually, as the the light reaches the event horizon, it's lost all of its energy relative to, to what we see, and so uh, we wouldn't be able to even detect the light anymore, even though it would still be coming uh, out uh, until it passes through the event horizon, and then beyond that we wouldn't see it anymore. But as we fall in, because of this effect, we would tend to see primarily light concentrated um, closer and closer to the zenith angle, right above our head. So. As we get closer to the event horizon, we see a progressively smaller cone of light from the rest of the universe until that point when we cross the event horizon itself, and only the light coming directly down would be be visible to us. And so uh, we, we would see these significant distortions because of the light bending and the gravitational redshift. And when we cross the event horizon, then of course nothing can go back out. So we can't communicate with the outside world But what we would see is only light falling directly inwards towards us.
0: Now, Stephen Hawking uh, made headlines uh, a few months ago um, concerning the information problem. That is, if you take the Encyclopedia Britannica and you were to throw it uh, into a black hole, all that information, said Stephen Hawking, would be permanently lost because it can't be retrieved. Um, however, he, he took back that position a few months ago. Uh, could you explain to us exactly what is this information problem that Stephen Hawking was addressing that made the front pages of so many newspapers?
3: Right. This, this is a very important problem, of course, because it, it's right on the interface between quantum mechanics and general relativity. And as, as you know yourself very well, Michio, there's this, this significant uh, conflict between what quantum mechanics says and requires and what classical general relativity says and requires. They're they're almost the two opposite ends when it comes to this question of um, uh, information loss and and how one uh, treats the force and and so on. So in quantum mechanics, information cannot be lost. But in, in general relativity, which is a classical theory, and these issues hadn't come up, uh... at the time when general relativity was being developed uh... when an object falls through the event horizon as we were saying before um, all the information that it carries with it the number of protons, the number of electrons, any geometric configuration, past history, whatever it has is never accessible again to the outside world, to the universe outside of the uh, of the black hole and so that's the paradox, or the conflict, I should say. It's not really a paradox, but that's the conflict <clears throat> between quantum mechanics and general relativity.
0: Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our first special guest was Dr. Neil Tyson. Director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, leading African American scientist. The second special guest was Dr. Fulvia Melia, chairman of the physics department at the University of Arizona and author of the book Edge of Infinity. And be sure to go to my website, www.mkaku.org, m k a k u.org, where it lists my complete book tour because I will be traveling around the country signing books and talking about parallel worlds. The new paperback edition of my book, the latest book to discuss cosmology, string theory, higher dimensions, time travel, the birth and the, perhaps, the end of the universe. Good day.